Hello! Remember, in the words of Lester Bangs, the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone when you are being uncool. Welcome to Uncool Music Conversations with Andy and Art. I'm Art. I'm Andy. And today we're talking about songcraft. The incredible, most difficult, challenging, misunderstood aspect of popular music. Mm -hmm. There's so many assumptions that fall into what involves making a song or what involves composing a lyric. Today, we are so fortunate. We're joined by a great musician, lyricist, song composer, Mike Bankhead. But before we talk to Mike, Andy, what do you think when we talk about songcraft? So here's the thing. And Mike's going to have a very different perspective than me, most likely. But I'm a musician who actually created his own music from time to time because, you know, I did Battle of the Bands and I won one one time. And I had a band that we played together and we created stuff. And for me, I was mostly the instrumental piece of what I was doing. So for me, it was like, hey, how do I come up? And I mostly play bass. So I was like, hey, how do I come up with a good groove? Hey, let's work together. It was a very collaborative creation of music. However, there's lots of artists out there that aren't collaborative at all. They're very selfish with their music creation and their music is still pretty good. And I would argue that the biggest misinterpretation, at least from my experience of talking to people, is that when I talk about music creation, I think some people literally think you just, and, this, and it's joked about a lot among musicians, oh, you just hop into a, to that you know studio, you create the song, you hop out and you go on tour. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know if you know how this works, but there's a reason why the Greeks were very big on, uh, you know, praying that the muse would hit them because sometimes, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I would create with my bandmates a song in maybe one session sometimes, and maybe someone just has a really good idea. And, you know, Queen talks about this, like one person comes to the idea and everyone builds on it, but everyone has their own process. And so to assume going to a studio is the way that everything's done. Sometimes you do on the train or as the Beatles once expressed it, because as Paul McCartney and three to McCartney talked about, <laughs> the Beatles songs are memorable because they had to remember them because they didn't have modern technology to like, as, uh, as, uh, different musicians do just kind of hum into their phones and they go into the studio. They have to create them ahead of time and sit down and do it. So I, I know it kind of went long on this, but I'm just going to point out everybody's way is different and every song is different. And if you talk to Gavin Rosdale from Bush, he came up with uh glycerine just because the muse hit him wrote it down as one of Bush's top songs. But sometimes, as we're talking about Kate Bush's Going Up That Hill, it was a hit, but it wasn't a big hit until way later. And that's a different right. process altogether. So, you know, I think I've given enough information about my perspective as a musician. <laughs> uh, what do you think about this, Art? <laughs> well, you raise a number of good points, Andy. As you know, I have for years taught courses related to popular music. And students will talk to me about exactly the misinterpretation that you just discussed. Musicians just pop into the studio and create something. Everybody plays their instrument live in the room, which is so far from the way that most music is recorded. It's not to say, again, as you correctly point out, some musicians 
practice and rehearse and try to capture that live element. And of course, where would live albums be (laughs) without that kind of energy? But so much of popular music, as well as other genres of music, is recorded very carefully, meticulously, different instruments, different vocals, different effects, background vocals, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we could do an entire podcast on the elements regarding production, and there's something we got to stick away in our brains. For Add later. to the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that list isn't getting any smaller, as I recall. <laughs> but I think it's important to take a step back, right? I am not an active musician. I participated in some short projects that I'm incredibly embarrassed by (laughs) when I was much younger than I am now. But even then I knew that song craft, like composing a song, the melody, the pentameter, the, the rhyme, the rhythm, the syncopation, all of the different musicological elements. And again, there's another show right there. Add that to the list. And all of that becomes a gestalt. It becomes part of this amazing creation. And the folks who do this are so often misunderstood or misrepresented. Mm -hmm. So we thought we would bring on someone who we know, who is an incredible songwriter, who is involved in what we're calling song craft. And that's our dear friend, Mike Bankhead. Mike, thank you so much for joining Andy and me on Uncool Music Conversations. Thanks for inviting me. And you used the word gestalt. So, like, this is already a, a cooler <laughs> than uncool conversation. Well, you know, uh, you're giving me far more credit than I deserve. <laughs> Let me just start off with the first question here, Mike. How do you approach songwriting? You're going to hate this answer, but it it depends. How does it depend? I have different reasons for writing. Sometimes I write. Well, first of all, you all, I believe as a songwriter, you should always write for yourself first, because if you don't believe in your art, you shouldn't ask anyone else to pay for it. Yeah, I agree. So (laughs) I always write for me first, but sometimes I write because there's something I need to get out. Right. It's cathartic and it's a way for me to deal with depression and anxiety. And as our friend David Payne says, it's cheaper than therapy. Right. Indeed. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'm writing because, all right, I haven't written anything for three weeks and I feel like it's time. So then it that becomes a little bit more like a job. I don't mean that in a derogatory or or derisive way. But if you're serious about the craft, if you don't do it a lot, then you, you know, don't, don't use it, you lose it. So sometimes I write because it's time and I have to write. I, I, unlike the ancient Greeks, I did not open with an invocation to the muse before very lengthy works. Because when you treat it like a job, sometimes you have to write when you're not necessarily in the mood to do so. Mm-hmm. And knowing how to work through those times when you're not really inspired but to get something written anyway is kind of a useful thing to have. Uh, Sometimes I write because I want to collaborate with another musician. So I might not have anything specifically I need to get off my chest or say, but I'm building something as a project with someone else and we're creating something together. 
So that's why it depends. I And this might not be the same for all songwriters. In fact, it's probably not. We're all really different creatures. But depending on the reason I'm writing that day, I might take a different approach. That's an interesting thing to think about because, I mean, I totally, I totally understand what you're talking about, but it, I've, I've always thought of music personally, and this is just from my own perspective, as either people tend to focus on either the job or they focus on the, not the muse convocation necessarily, but like, the, oh, something hit me immediately. And I like how you hit both of those. Uh, one example I'll give is someone else who talks about this recently, at least, was Ed Sheeran. And by the way, if I ever became like a famous musician, Ed Sheeran would probably be the guy I am because he's the type of person that like, he just enjoys what he does. And, but sometimes he takes a year off because he's just done for a year. But he talked about specifically, someone asked him, like, well, how do you come up with these love songs? And it's an interview I ran into. And he said, well, it's kind of my job. And then what you do is write love songs all the time. You just sit down and say, okay, here's the mechanics, how I put it together. But Mike, I think you said this in a pretty good way. It doesn't mean it's a derogatory thing to treat it like a job. It just means you take it seriously. Am I correct in taking it that way? Or You are. And I'm laughing about the Ed Sheeran mention because I don't like him at all. Mm. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but I have, I have a co my co I have a co-writer that's from his hometown huh. and he comes up in discussion fairly often because she is just as redheaded as he is. And of course, since she's from his hometown, he's kind of a local hero there. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, she knows that I don't like him or his work or his tendency to perhaps lift things from other musicians that he uh, There is that. <laughs> uh, now, I'm not saying he's a terrible musician or songwriter. That's not what I mean. I just mean I don't like the guy. Like, I don't like his art. He might be a fantastic individual. So yeah, I get a little chuckle out of out of you mentioning a Sharon, and I hope that Ruth listens to this conversation because she'll she'll hear you praising him and be like, "See, told you." <laughs> well, I mean, for just pop, I mean, we, we, it's something we mentioned in the podcast once or twice before as a consumable good. Ed Sheeran is a great writer because he, yes, he, I, yeah, undoubtedly, that, as a yeah. consumable good, he's yeah, bankable. That, Yep, that, and that's, that's the way I express it because I, I didn't, until very recently, following an Instagram guy who talks about this sort of topic, I didn't realize how much he wrote and stuff he wrote for other people, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I thought he wrote, he wrote for himself until I was like, just random things to pop Ed Sheeran. And I'm like, oh, okay, so he's a dude who also just writes for other people. And he's kind of here, not just for the money, but he's here a lot for the money. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone has to live somewhere and eat. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, and <laughs> I would love to write for other people. If if you have access to people that need a writer, I'm I'm totally available. One of my favorite songwriters is a gentleman from uh, Art's beloved Minneapolis named Dan Wilson, and mostly these days he writes more for other people than for himself. I think he's he's written a bunch of hits for Adele. He's written with John Legend, and that's how he pays the bills. And unless you're a complete music nerd like we are. Like everyday people have no clue who he is. Mm -hmm. They all know his hit "Closing Time." Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if you said yeah. who wrote that, nobody's going to tell you like, "Oh, Dan Wilson wrote that." But he also yeah. wrote a whole bunch of songs in Adele's Twenty Five record. Yeah, that was I actually talked about that very recently, like literally yesterday with someone because that, or no, two days ago because that song. 
that's a song you have to pay attention to the lyrics and understand the story behind it because closing time has nothing to do with closing time despite every bar in the entire universe it does not it It does not it has to do with his basically his relationship with his wife and his children hence the term when you i forget the exact lyric but it's like this one won't be open to your brothers and your sisters come because it's referring to like his wife having more children and that's the point of the of it and no one gets that unless you understood his story and him telling you about it so yeah is it also wrong if memory I serves i don't think he liked that I, song when he first wrote it like he thought it was silly and his yeah. manager was like you just wrote a hit dude <laughs> <laughs> well I, I frequently talk to my students about that i know dan and i i have just some throw that name out there trip shakespeare tool master of brainer uh mentioned back some of those embarrassing days so Dan's previous group before Semisonic was um, a, a group that, that I was well acquainted with from Duluth, Minnesota. Um, and uh, of course, that's where John Munson comes from, who then became a member of Semisonic along with Dan. But uh, Jake Slichter joined through, through a different direction. But, but, but it's interesting where I walk the students through. He wrote this as a new father. Right. His relationship to his wife, as yep. Andy mentions, his relationship to his daughter, you know, the places you will be from is uh, about more about family and some of these other dynamics in our everyday lives has nothing to do with bars, as Andy correctly notes. But of course, that when everyone hears that and I think Dan is aware enough to understand that people are going to put it into that kind of context. So while it's a deeply personal and intimate song for him, it becomes a deeply social song for others. And that was abs- obviously intentional. I mean, you can't be a, as meticulous a writer as Dan Wilson and not do that kind of thing on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, and he, if you follow him on social, he gives a lot of really useful songwriting advice. He wrote this intentionally for his band to use as a set closer. Like yeah. they were sick of the yeah. other song that they were playing as a set closer and they were like, we need a set closer song. And so he went out and wrote one. And one of the things he says in his advice is as a musician, you should write a song to open your sets and write a song to close your sets. And if you don't have one, go write that song. You might use it for something else. Right. Um, like it's to me, it's genius. I didn't know that you actually knew him, Art. I'm going to have to. Can I have an introduction? <laughs> Name dropping her all around this place. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that and a couple of bucks will get you a cup of coffee, Mike. I mean, <laughs> I, I know someone that knows Jacob. So I'm. Oh, Jacob's a nice guy. Yeah, I'm one degree of separation from that part of the band. And see, now I know someone that knows Dan Wilson. Like, I'm. Yeah, that's, he's kind of one of my songwriting heroes. Oh, he's a brilliant songwriter. I. I know that he's worked with with many different people i think the the work that he did with um not a surf right sitting working with matthew cause who is another lovely person who is a very good songwriter purposefully worked with dan in order to kind of elevate his songwriting and in those not a surf records you can see exactly where the songwriting becomes and it was always good in my humble opinion um all the way you know back to the very beginnings of the band but you can see the elevation of the lyrics and the way the melody and the lyrics work together 
uh, or, or counter each other for that matter. I, I do have to ask you, Mike. So, so you're you're talking about the way you think about songwriting. Pretend that we're just a fly on the wall. How do you start with an idea? What instrument are you on? Or what what are you doing in terms of a lyric? Where do you start? I like that question because I ask other musicians that same question on my podcast. <laughs> well, I should have know, expected I, it. Sorry, man. Sorry. It's like, well, no, it's okay. You know, That's people a, stealing ideas from others. Uh... That's a valid question. The answer, as always, is it depends. And if you ask me about a specific song that I've written, I would be able to tell you how that song started, but they're not always the same. So I'll take you through some of the sometimes. Like many musicians today, I have a lot of voice memos on my phone because I might wake up at some stupid middle-of-the-night hour when your subconscious is in overdrive and a song came to me, and I might remember 20 seconds of it and be able to sleepily sing it to myself in my voice memos. But I have snippets of of mostly melody, very rarely lyrics sometimes, mostly melody or uh, chord progressions in my voice memos. And when I really desperate for something, I start coming through those and, and picking out the ones that I think are the least terrible or the ones that I can figure out what I was trying to say to myself at three in the morning. Because sometimes I listen back and I'm like, I have no idea what I was trying to do. <laughs> Uh, sometimes the first instrument is piano. I took piano lessons in my late thirties just because I wanted to be prof not proficient. I wanted to use it as a writing tool. I write, and you guys know, but your listeners might not. I write full band guitar rock, but like Andy, I'm a bass player by trade, but I write whoop, guitar whoop. music. Yeah. <laughs> holding down the bottom end, but I'm, I write guitar music without being able to play guitar. Well, I can't just take a guitarist, my bass lines, especially since I don't, I'm weird. I don't just bang around on the root. I play fourths and thirds and sevenths. And I play bass notes that most guitarists are like, why would you choose that bass note with this chord? So I usually compose on piano so that when I'm giving a song to a guitarist to learn to come to the studio, I can give them the full chord flavor and not just the bass part that I'm going to play with it, which might not make intuitive sense to a guitarist because I don't think the way that guitarists think, which is okay. I, I have found that it's been a challenge, but it's okay. Uh, sometimes it's the bass. Like when I'm just sitting around either practicing or messing around, I don't often just mess around on the piano. If I'm on a piano, I'm usually doing something intentional, but I do just mess around on the bass. And if I'm doing that, I might come up with a chord progression or a riff and that develops into a song. Very rarely am I a lyric first songwriter. Sometimes, but very rarely. I find it much easier to have the music done and deal with the lyrics later. What I find interesting about that, so uh, so I used to tell people back when I, I was, we were, my band that I was in that actually like started creating stuff, we were, the, my first band, not my second band, my first band was like, we were very much instruments first, lyrics later. However, I, I do have to wonder, and I don't have a good answer for this, I have to wonder how many people actually do lyrics first and then the, the actual instrumentation, because that seems, at least to me, like I'm a, I was a, <laughs> I was a published poet. So it's like, you know, I'm actually a halfway, I was halfway decent, but I could not for the life of me work those words in unless it made sense to do so. And so I, I don't know, Mike, how often do you actually go about putting lyrics in and 
Do you know anybody else that does lyrics first, quite honestly? My my Ipswich based co-writer is a lyrics first co-writer, and this is a point of contention between us. Friendly contention, you know, the way you yeah, argue with your friend, someone someone that you love. But I don't get it. Every now and then I'll write lyrics first, but I need lyrics to have musical context. And honestly, if the music isn't any good, I'm not going to get around. You're not going to catch me listening to the song long enough to get to pay attention to the lyrics. It doesn't mean I don't think lyrics are important. I think lyrics are very important, and I take a lot of care pruning mine. But if you haven't written decent enough music, you're not going to get my attention long enough for me to want to figure out what you're trying to say. That's probably why most of the time I'm a music first writer. Uh, in my podcast, this is something I ask to pretty much every musician I have on. And I'd say anecdotally, maybe one in 15 are lyrics first. It's rare. It's rare. That, you know what? I just had, it's not out yet. I just recorded a conversation with Joe Augustine, who records as Achilles Tenderloin. And that'll go up on Wednesday, the 20, whatever day this Wednesday is. Wednesday, the 22nd is when that podcast will go up. He is a lyrics first songwriter. But if you listen to his music, you you can get it. And he definitely takes care with his lyrics. Um, his approach works for him. I'm like you, Andy. Um, I find it hard to write music around lyrics. I feel like I've written myself into a corner if I've done that. Especially since the first version of any lyrics I write is just that. It's the first version. I am always editing and editing again and pruning and correcting and looking for that perfect word, sometimes probably too much. And I find that that is easier for me if I know what kind of syllabic space I have to put those lyrics into. Again, your mileage as a songwriter, dear listener, might vary. <laughs> well, so I, I just, I, I, I love it when people give me numbers because I, I started as a quantitative scholar. Again, this is kind of a nerdy podcast, everybody, so I want to make that very clear. Uh, that would make it for about 6%, 6% of musicians that at least Mike has talked to that do that, which is to say uh, not even one out of 10, one out of every 15. So I I, I don't know how you feel about this, Mike, and or Art. I really don't think there's a bad way to write a song, if I'm being honest. No, there's not. <laughs> the, the, you know what? The way to write a song is the way that gets it finished. Yeah. And and as long finishing, as it works. finishing is so much harder than starting, especially when you are self-critical. Mm -hmm. um, you, or perfectionist, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard just to get the thing done. Um I, I just thought of an example where uh, I right before we started this podcast, I read you guys a Shakespearean sonnet I wrote, right? Thanks for doing that, by that's the way. That's a good example. It. Yeah, Thank I'm not going to read it on the podcast, but that's an example of you could call that music for songwriting. There's no music, but you know going in, if you're going to write a Shakespearean sonnet, your rhyme scheme is already determined. Yes. Right? Your meter is determined. You know it's mm -hmm. iambic and pentameter, so there's 10 syllables for each line, and you know where the stressed and unstressed are, and it's going to be 4442. Four, four, you know this. There's your structure. To me, that's like having your music already written for a song. Now all you got to do is plug the words in. Yeah. Well, what I find interesting, because you, you bring out a point that a lot of musicians will joke with each other about, and there's memes about this whole thing. Um, 
there's a meme scheme where it's usually like one person's like, oh, hey, cool, a new thing. and But then they have like 10 other things just sitting that they thought were cool new things and never finished. That is probably, I would argue, a lot of a musician's life, especially if you write on a regular basis. It's that whole like, oh, hey, I have a new idea, but you didn't finish the last idea. So, yeah, but I like this new idea better. It's going to be the one. And inevitably, give it, eh, unless you're someone like Mike who has some self-discipline, quite honestly. Uh, later, kind of hit the hit the pile of the I haven't finished yet unless you've actually put some effort into it. So I, I like that you mentioned that because yeah, it it takes uh, discipline and thought. And unless you magically put you on the spot, it takes time, effort to actually put that together. But the way that you mentioned is interesting because I never really, although I used to it back in the day, I never really thought about iambic pentameter having music attached to it because well, they they didn't do it that way back in the day. But that's really smart. It almost sounds like, in a way, how you move music into um, to different other med- mediums is to find out how is it going to be put together and then put music in, into the music scene. So, yeah, we're getting all sorts of stuff now, Mike. You've, you've broken up the broken the shell. So no, but it is. <laughs> if you think about it, it's musical, not as far as pitch, but as far as rhythm, it's absolutely musical. It's got a defined yeah. form and structure. And you know where you're unstressed and stressed are. About finishing, I was going to say something that has helped me over the last few years. I am in an online uh, songwriting group called the Five and Five Songwriting Group. And I'm going to give credit where it is due to uh, Sarah Spencer. Sarah Spencer is a Nashville-based songwriter whose goal was basically to encourage women songwriters to go do the thing because as we've mentioned before we started, the industry is unkind to women a lot of times and she wants to lift up others. So she started this, I guess you could call it an online club. It's a Facebook group uh, with a membership. And the deal is she gives you in a business week. So Monday through Friday, a prompt each morning and you have to write one song each day. Now, In order to do this properly, you have to at least turn off your internal critic and your internal editor long enough to get the song done because you can't take Monday's song and still be working on it Wednesday, right? You're going to get another song prompt on Tuesday. I will tell you that being part of that group and knowing that, right, I have to attack this prompt and do the thing, regardless of whether I think it's good, (laughs) I have to actually finish and then do something new the next day, even though... To be honest, not every time do I get five songs out of it. Like the, the goal is you come out with five songs. Whether or not you want to keep them is a different thing. But doing the exercise has made me a better songwriter. And sometimes I do get five finished songs. I don't necessarily want to share all of them. They're not necessarily always good. But forcing yourself to put the editing voice aside and finish is valuable. Because you know what? You can come back in two weeks and edit. Right? I can finish the song Monday, come back in three weeks and fix the things I didn't like. Listen to it with fresh ears. But if you don't at least finish, then you're left with like just a lot of hanging. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of hanging, partially baked ideas. And if you really want to write songs, you got to finish them. And that's, I mean, that is often, I mentioned already, but I'll just, you know, kind of bookmark it. Yeah. Uh, or bookend it. Yeah, totally. Cause I, I think that's a great exercise just, just for my own personal opinion, because 
I feel like the internal critic is sometimes the challenge. And, and not to mention, I actually enjoy it, and some people don't. But I actually really enjoy it when a musician actually puts out like a studio album, and then they realize that version of the song wasn't good enough for their own taste, and so they adjust it and put it on a new album, which sometimes, you know, there's copyright problems depending. But I, I would say Green Day in particular did that for their first few albums, uh, not after that because they then went really mainstream. But when they were more, but towards the first albums, they, they did that for like, it was like one song per album. They would then adjust, make it better, and put on the next album. While that's a little bit lazy, perhaps, I thought it was a smart idea because, because you know, no one's ever, I would argue, me personally, that you're never really done with the song. Even after you've created it, if you care about it, you're probably going to adjust something sooner or later. Nirvana in particular was known for doing that because they were just like, oh yeah, that was a studio version. We're just going to make an adjustment about that. We're just going to, every time you would hear it, it was a different song. Buster Rhymes to walk, walk out of, uh, you know, rock music. Buster Rhymes did that. Most of the stuff he had in, uh, in the studio, that's what he had in his head when he was in the studio. After that, it, you would hear it very differently anywhere else. So I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, Mike, but that's kind of my general thought on that. Style. I'm not built that way. I would <laughs> rather get it to where I want it before I let anyone else hear it, especially if I'm going to ask them to pay for it. And and a band that I think does this, not I think, I know it does this, is Radiohead. Mm. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, someone hacked them and threatened to release a whole bunch of their yeah. <laughs> demos. And Radiohead was like, fine, then we'll just put them on ourselves. And so they released hundreds of hours of stuff that was their work when they weren't done. And I listened to some of it, of course, because I'm obsessed with that band. And it was interesting to hear the way they worked through building songs and how many iterations, songs that I know the lyrics to and know the structure to, but the lyrics were different in this iteration and some of their chord choices were different. But that's a band that they get done before you hear it. They go through a whole... I mean. They'll sit on a song for 15 years if they're not happy with it. True Love Wait sat around for a couple decades, didn't it, before they got around to actually releasing a studio-recorded version? And I don't even know that the studio-recorded version they released is the way that I would have done it, but that's that's how they are. They're, they're very meticulous about making sure that whatever they release for public consumption is something they want their name on. And we don't really have a lot in common because they're so so much more accomplished and better musicians than me. But I think that is something we have in common that I don't want to put something out with my name on it. If it's not the best I can do right now, like if it's, if, if you can do better, you owe it to yourself and to anyone listening to do better. I have to jump in. Um, I am fascinated by the whole release of demos or unfinished songs or, early takes i i pointed out i on on our radio show as well as in my classes there are all those demos that, that are often released at the 20th anniversary 25th anniversary etc cetera, etc cetera. and i often find that the demos speak to me more as a listener my own personal taste which is apropos of nothing but I will, I listen, for example, I'll use a famous band here. Um, Go Your Own Way by Fleetwood Mac. Started out as a simple little jam that, that Lindsey Buckingham had worked up with, with the other instrumentalists in the band. And it's before the guitar solo and 
the other additional vocals, which of course added so much. And without the really heavy production that the song would eventually go through. And so you can actually hear that, that uh, like one of the guitar strings is probably not quite where it should be, but there's a certain earnestness to that version of the song. And to me, it is even more emotionally devastating in that raw state. Or I think of uh, many other demos. I'm a huge Replacements fan. And I think of some of the earliest versions of their song, Can't Hardly Wait, which eventually goes on Please to Meet Me, which was a simple sing-song kind of thing that was more call and response than the rock and roll song that it became. And so for me, the unvarnished, the awkward, the raw, the, let's be honest, mistakes actually can make a song even more fantastic or beautiful or compelling. What, what do you think about that, Mike? I wonder if you would feel that way if you'd never heard the original. Right? These are songs that already mean something to you. That's a good point. If the demo I, was the first thing you'd heard, you might not feel that way. Another good point with that one, and, and Art, you probably already know this, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a famous story. I mean, Lindsey Buckingham wrote that because him and Stevie Nicks were on the outs. And right. so I'm, that whole album was nothing but people pissed off at each other and in the studio, quite honestly. So I, I do wonder, I, but Mike has a really good point. I'm going to try to talk over him, talk for him, but it is, it's, okay, it's, it's a the equivalent of someone's in the middle of a divorce and they're pissed at their soon-to-be ex-wife. I'm going to write a song. You could go your own way. I've not heard this. It might be better. I don't know. But Mike, I think, has a point because, like, yeah, it sounds great because you know the final version. So you know the emotion behind it. But if you don't know the story, is it any good? I got no good answer for you. <laughs> it's an impossible question to answer. But I, I'm not saying you're wrong, Mike. I'm just saying that, that even though I'm working backwards, from from the official released version to a demo, I find myself drawn to the demos of many songs more often than I find myself drawn to the official released versions. So I feel like my demos are so low quality, most people would have a hard time knowing where the song is in them. And I think the only way anyone would ever understand my demos is if they heard the actual final song first. And that, by the way, is the reason I don't let you hear my demos. <laughs> like, I let you hear stuff sometimes that's in progress. And then I tell you, you can't play this for anyone and no, you can't play it on the radio because it's not done. <laughs> but by in progress, that means I've already been to the studio a couple times and already spent some money on some professional recording. I'm not about to share my demos with you before they're recorded and not just you people in general right, right. the only people that hear my demos before they're done <laughs> is the engineer and any musicians that i need to rope in to come into the studio with me and why is that mike well, i'm not an engineer i pay someone for that no right. no no. i mean why is it that, that you believe that no one should hear it until it's in its final form oh because most people don't understand music enough to know where I want to go with it from just me on a piano, right? Look, I play something on a piano that is technically genre free. I could turn that into anything. Maybe I decide to make it a shoegaze song. 
your average music listener, if I just play a me and a piano demo, voice and piano, and tell them that shoegaze, they'll be like, uh, right? Most people can't hear it. They don't understand enough or not imaginative enough to get there. This is one of the things that that influences the kind of studio engineer I want to work with. I need to be able to work with people that can take my terrible, low-quality home demos and see past the low quality to where the song is and then understand when I tell them, when I tell them where I want to go, and then they will help guide me to get there. And most music listeners just, right, they don't have that ability because they don't need to. It's not their job to build songs, right? They they just want to listen and be entertained. My home demos are not for your entertainment. They're, <laughs> they're me getting ideas down, right? So I, I said this off air. And I'm saying it to you on air. Well, on air, it's it's a recording. You get my point. Uh, I, I the thing I really enjoy about Mike Bankhead. By the way, Phil, for those who have never heard of Mike before, I just want to give you my take as someone who's who's heard a number of his songs, but generally like on you know Art's other show that it pops up from time to time. I would say I would argue that Mike is kind of genreless in general. Now you, you may build them in a way they kind of sound like shoegaze and various other styles, but I, I found it so interesting because I hit your Spotify earlier today, just because I like to re-review our, our musicians before I talk to them. So I don't like an idiot, if nothing else. And I'm like, this dude is doing like an instrumental track. This next one is what I would say sort of like, kind of like pop or alt rock. Then I'm like, I'm going through and I'm like, I've heard other albums. He, you have the one that I thought was so interesting, which was just ambient noise. And it's all these things. I'm like, you know, I think Mike just likes creating music that speaks to him and with to hell with the genre. So I, I find that deeply inter- interesting because in my experience, they tend to be really high level musicians that say, okay, I'm doing a country song today. Like a Dolly Parton, like I'll do country, country today. Tomorrow I'm going to do a rock song. I'm just going to switch up as I feel like it. How does that work in your head, Mike? Do you just, kind of build it or do you do that on purpose? So first I have to give credit to, to where it is due for the ambient noise one. That is the, uh, the house of electronic minions remix of hold the wick that you're talking about. Mm. Uh, because it is basically like six minutes of, like I told him when he first sent it to me, that sounds like Radiohead's tree fingers, but if they were really anxious mm. and he built that by, uh, his civilian name is Justin, but the House of Electronic Minions is his artist name, T-H-O-E-M on Spotify. Uh, he's, I sent him the stems for the Hold the Wick session, and I know he's an electronic musician, and he focused on a specific vocal phrase in the song that spoke to him and then built a story around that. So unless you know him and me and our relationship, you probably wouldn't get it. Uh, the thing that's really interesting about music to me is that when he put it together, I, I described to him like what I felt at the part where it kind of, there's a part where it kind of winds down and it starts back up. And I described to him what I felt there. And he was like, that's exactly what I was going for. And you get it. And he was telling a specific story and he has expressed to me frustration that in his chosen genre, which doesn't have lyrics, a lot of people can't hear the stories he tells in his music. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I don't hear the stories in that genre, except for we have a specific... We used to be co-workers at, at, a, at, a, corporate, at a corporate job. So we have a professional... We had a professional relationship. We have a personal relationship. We know each other fairly well. I kind of know the way he thinks. 
And for those specific reasons, I knew the story he was trying to tell with the song that I handed him. Otherwise, I'd be just as clueless as the next person without lyrics trying to tell me a story, which I think is kind of funny. But I like the way that that he is able to express emotion with just ambient noise, which is why I wanted that. So I could take zero credit for that. Uh, that that particular remix bears the least in common with the original <laughs> than any of them do. But I think it's great, which is exactly what I wanted from that project. Now I totally forgot the question you asked because I went off on that tangent. Oh, I was, I, you're, you're, dude, you were perfectly fine. I was, it, my, my question was like, I'm not sure if I'm expressing it properly because it seems improper to express it, but I'll say it this way. It's not improper. <laughs> so, so how do, how do you avoid genre? I guess is the better direct version of this question. So that's say. funny. Cause I feel like I don't always, uh, I'm about to go to another music education and networking conference. And they tell you that you need to have an elevator pitch. My elevator mm. pitch is, and I quote, I make hooky Midwestern rock with strong power pop influences. Right? You need to be able to say what you do quickly mm-hmm. in an elevator pitch. Now, is that all I do? No. I've got a French lullaby. I've got a French shoegaze song. I've got piano ballads. I've got a salsa song. I've got an Americana song. None of those are hooky Midwestern rock with strong power pop influences. However, I would say that's my default, like where I feel at home and comfortable making music. That said, since I usually write on piano and that's genreless, I try to... Once this song is done, and if I think it's good enough to share, then I think about going to the studio and I think about what is the best way that I can serve the song and express these sentiments? What's the best attack? And that doesn't necessarily have to be genre dependent. There are things that I like, but sometimes I want to, like, Wampa Canetta, I intentionally set out to write an Americana song. Like I knew from the get-go, this is going to be an Americana song. So there's certain things you have to do on the way to writing an Americana song. Sometimes I don't really have a genre in mind if I'm just sitting with the piano and writing a song. I'll get to that later if it makes the list to go to the studio, right? If it doesn't make the list to go to a studio, then I'm ever then I'm either only going to play it solo with my bass or solo with the piano at songwriting nights, probably. In which case, it doesn't need to have a genre. It can just be expressed the way that it lives on the piano or the bass. I feel like I didn't answer that well. I think you hit it very well. And the reason I say you hit it very well is because I would argue, and this is just from my own experience, because I used to tell people, I used to play classical music, which by the way, classical music does have a story built in despite not having lyrics. So it's not like, so it's occasionally, especially if you're really into, oh, I don't remember the local uh, classic uh, FM station numbers off the top of my head, but but sometimes they'll tell you the story going in. 88.1, I forget the call letters, but yeah, listen to that religiously. So yeah, it's a very, it's actually a very good station. And, and, and kind of underfunded, by the way. So I, I'm not going to throw you away from like the radio, the college radio stations, but it's a good one. But they will tell you the story before you go in, just so you understand, which is, which is great. At the same time, uh, Peter and the Wolf, which is one of the ones I remember from when I was a kid, you can kind of tell there's something going on and there's no words. You just hear like a piccolo for a bird. And then Peter is like done with different, like uh, I think it's like violins or however they put it together. And you can tell that that his movement is oboe sounds. So like it can be done. And so, but I, but back to your, your answer, I think yours is a good one because it, it doesn't. Okay. If I want to go deeper into this, that's a different episode that we sort of kind of talked about. You don't have to build things through genre. 
And I really enjoy that you're one of the few musicians that I'm aware of that doesn't concern yourself with genre. You just say, ah, it's a good song and I'll make it work. So, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I do. Uh, the EP that I'm currently working on, every song is in a different genre. And that was a conscious choice. Well, once I got three songs into it and they were all different genres, then I decided, let me lean into it and make them all different. Mm. I, I really enjoy that because that was actually a gold mine once upon a time, but my, my band's never made that work, so that never happened. But I was like, I just want to be that guy that switches genre for every song and just see how people react to it. Well, so. you're going to like that one. I don't know when it'll be done. I'm done tracking, but you know, there's a whole lot after that. Oh. There's mixing is in progress, and then I got to get it mastered, and then there's got to put together a marketing plan. So I don't know when that's out, but uh, that one is going to feature my first ever blues song. I wrote a funk song for it. I wrote a gospel song for it. It was fun. I, I think... I think it's really going to confuse people. Is that a goal, Mike, then to create something that purposefully moves across genres so as to confuse? Well, for this specific project, the goal wasn't to confuse, but the goal was definitely to to move across genres. So to explore different genres. Yeah. The uh, the thread and this, I mean, it's not a secret anymore because I wrote a blog post about it, but the, the general idea behind the, the EP is all of the songs are about uniquely black experiences. Most of them are written during the pandemic. And instead of spreading them across multiple records, because I've written about things before, like I, I wrote Anecdote, which is on uh, the CD version of Anxious Inventions and Fictions, and Tino came in and rapped on that, and we we're both talking about being pulled over by police when we didn't need to be. Hashtag driving while black. Uh, so the songs in this EP are about other experiences unique to black folks or possibly other minority folks told from my first person point of view. So it's very open and very vulnerable and intentionally I wanted every song on it to be a different genre. All of which, by the way, have their roots in black music. So there's, like I mentioned, there's a, there's a funk song on it, a blues song on it, a gospel song on it. There's also an Americana song, so I'm going back to that well for a second time. I've got like a punk slash dance song. I've got a jazzy doo-wop song. Like it's, I feel like it's going to confuse some people, but from a creativity standpoint, like it's a, I think it's the best work I've ever done from a creativity and cohesive and storytelling standpoint. It's all going to sound like me, but there'll be no mistaking that the blue song is a blue song and no mistaking that the gospel song is a gospel song, but it all sounds like me, if that makes sense. When you say there's no mistaking that the song sounds like blues or gospel or whatever, what is it in particular in those songs that make you say that? Good question. So I'll talk the blue song first. I, uh, not really a big fan of blues music as far as playing it. And the reason is, as a bass player, they don't give us much to do. Guitar players get to like solo and do cool stuff. Most blues music follows a very specific pattern, and it's formulaic, and it repeats, repeats, repeats. Not my kind of thing. But I really wanted to write a blues song for this record and respect the genre and honor the genre. So I, And I love writing in minor key, and most blues songs are major key with seventh chords. So I just went to Google and was like, hey, Google, show me some popular blues songs that are minor key songs. And B.B. King's The Thrill is Gone, which is a very popular and famous song, is a minor key blues song. And I never knew that. 
until I Googled it. So I basically stole that chord progression. I changed the key, so it's not the same key as his original, but it's the exact same chord progression. So I stole the progression from B.B. King's The Thrill Is Gone, and it is unmistakably blues. Like I'm moving with the bass. I'm moving through that progression, and the other accompanying instruments are playing through that progression. And because of the way the chords are set up, the lyric or the melody is going to have a certain... Like the melody is tied to the harmony part. I'm trying to explain this in a way that non-musicians wouldn't understand it, and this is why I'm having trouble voicing what I'm thinking. The melodies for blues songs are all going to have something in common because they're based on the same chord pattern. So you only have a certain amount of notes to choose from. There's going to be a similar feel to what the melody feels like. You could listen to it, and it's obviously a blues song. I try to do as much as I could to respect the genre. There's guitar solos. There's some keyboard solos. But, uh, yeah, there's unmistakably blues. The gospel song based on two specific verses from the Bible because gospel music is rooted in old worship music, right? So, again, I wanted to respect the genre. There's lots of uh, choral, big chorus voices. I wanted to actually get the gospel choir, and that proved to be very difficult. I was not able to do it. So we built one. Uh, I'm on there like 20 times <laughs> singing harmonies. Uh, Mariah J., who is uh, a Dayton-based soul and R&B singer, is on there a bunch singing harmonies. I got Cam, uh, the Cadence, another Dayton uh, singer in there. So we built a choir with like three people, which you can do with the magic of the studio, but it's got a big uplifting choir it's got organ right you think gospel song you got to have that churchy hammond b3 sound right so we got the we got the organ all of the percussion is done by body parts so clapping and foot stomping is only percussion so we tried to again let's respect the genre let's go as old school as we can within the limits of my like i'm not a gospel songwriter that's not what i do but if I'm going to try to do it, let's try to be respectful of the way that music is made and look back into the history and do what we can to imitate historically how gospel songs were made. I'm really proud of that one. And um, yeah, I can't share it with you today, but I think you guys might like that. I'm actually really proud of the vocal effort I did. My, uh, my vocal lessons came in handy for that with me singing multiple harmonies <laughs> to myself. For those who want to hear a version of this, what, what, by the way, Mike, that's impressive that you put that much. No, okay, that time, much of time and effort is to anything you care about. I get that much, but that is impressive. The for those who've never heard what that sounds like, or someone who's done that before, just think of Sam Smith. I know I'm not the only one, uh, or there's a couple of different songs where he does the same thing. He also had a legal problem with that song, if I remember correctly, but he, it was. One of those songs where he had to layer over himself because you just couldn't find anybody who would do the lyrics properly and do the sound properly. And so you you did the work, like you did the thing that makes it. I haven't heard it. I'm looking forward to hearing it at some point because it just sounds amazing. To me. Give me your email address and I'll send you what I've got, but you can't share it. I was going to say, for an example, you should go to Bohemian Rhapsody because Queen did it. Oh, yeah, it's a point. So, yeah. Like, there's a, it sounds like there's a million people singing on Bohemian Rhapsody, and I think there's like three. Yeah, this and famously in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, named after the song, surprise, surprise, uh, they, they have that kind of famous scene where they're in that like middle of nowhere cabin or whatever. And I don't know if that actually happened, but it wouldn't surprise me based upon the way technology was back at that time, that they basically had to 
squeal as high as possible in falsetto to hit the tones they were aiming for, because by God, Freddie Mercury was not going to do anything less than perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> the days before uh, pitch adjusting software, which I don't believe in, by the way. I'm an old guy, and I told my engineer for this new EP, who's a much younger fellow, and he's used to using that stuff. Uh, I told him, yeah, I, I don't want any pitch correcting software. It just made me sing it until it's correct. I, I like that, though. I mean, I don't know how Art feels about, you know, the old school style of things. Uh, but I, I t okay, I like the software if the software makes sense. I am not, uh, I'm in my late, well, nearing late 30s now. But I, I appreciate the physical put-downness, even though everything's done electronically. I like the dedication to getting the pieces right in a very real raw sense, because when you throw in the finesse of other styles, it just, I feel like it takes away from it a little bit. If that's just a personal opinion. So, yeah. Well, I, I didn't use any pitch correction and I'm not a singer, so I'm the kind of person who should, <laughs> but that said, I mean, you give me a note and if you give me enough, enough tries at it, I'll hit it on the right pitch. It's just a matter of doing it until it's right, which, yeah which we did. I'm pretty proud of the vocals on that one. So I'll, I'll again, I'll send it to you guys when we're done, but you, you can't share it yet. Okay. Well, we'll hold back. We, we appreciate the insider. <laughs> on this. <laughs> I'm, I want to point out that we're quickly running out of time. Mike, what led you to become a songwriter in the first place in the first instance? Wow. We're running out of time. I don't feel like we even got through all your questions. Do we need to do a second part? Oh, don't tempt us. Don't tempt no, us, No, I'm Mike. serious. I feel like we didn't get through. You probably have this list of questions we did get through. Um, I I don't have any other artistic out, outlets. I can't draw. I always wanted to be a writer. I said, like, you know, prose, but I don't know how to write a plot. I mean, I enjoy writing, but that's not something I don't have that gift. I really don't even have a gift for music. I had to sit and work at practice and study and learning to make music i'm definitely not um a gifted musician which um for all the people out there who don't think they can make music yes you can if you decide to put the work in and learn how to do it you can and i am i am proof i'm not gifted at music i worked hard and i learned how to do it but yeah i just wanted to be able to have an artistic outlet and express myself uh, when i was a kid i wrote poetry uh, poetry does not always work as song lyrics sometimes it does sometimes it does not but it's I would say that it's a relative of song lyrics. And once I learned how to make music, that would seem like the next logical step, right? Um, it's a form of self-expression. It's a form of catharsis. It helps me deal with the dumpster fire of the world we live in. It helps me deal with my anxiety and depression. And like most musicians, I'm a music fan. Like, I don't think you'll meet anyone that writes songs or makes music that doesn't love music. We go to concerts, we buy CDs, we buy albums on vinyl, and we are fans first, those of us who are musicians. So if you love it that much, like, aren't you going to want to try to make the kind of thing that you'd want to hear? <laughs> right? One of the things I ask myself when I finish a song in the studio is, man, would 16-year-old me dig this? And if the answer is yeah, then I know I've got something, regardless of what anyone else says, because I know that my tastes are not the same. Like, I don't write pop music. What I write and what I make is not what's popular now. But 16-year-old me would dig it, which means that I'm doing the right thing. And, and you're doing this within an industry that is, in some ways, literally set against your self-expression, right? Very much so, yeah. 
Very much so. The so so the other follow up to that becomes the the, the kind of logical <laughs> issue. Why do it? Given an industry that wants to sell, you know, the latest pop sensation or the latest industry smash, can everybody see all the air quotes that are floating around, right? Uh, why continue to pursue that in a field that is not open to the kind of self-discovery that you're talking about? That's the most important question, and the answer is because I have to. Nobody that is still doing music, especially independent artists, we all would probably love to have this be our job to make a living at music. I'm not talking about being rich and I'm not talking about being famous. Those are not concerns. I'm talking about be able to write songs or perform songs in exchange for enough currency to live your life, have a place to live, have food to eat, take care of your family. The stuff that we all have jobs to do, right? I would like music to be that job. The odds are stacked against you the way the music business is set up. So you have to be crazy to keep doing it or because you have to. And here's the thing, I would write songs anyway. I would do it anyway, even if I, I mean, I was writing songs before I started going to the studio and recording them and trying to sell them. I just didn't think they were good enough for anyone else to listen to, so I never bothered. Uh, it took some external encouragement to convince me that my work was good enough for someone else to hear, right? But I'm always going to write because I have to. Now, the reason I get my songs professionally recorded is I don't have the ability to express them the way that I hear them in my head so that I can hear them outside of my head correctly. I can't do that on my own. I require professional help to do that, which is why I hire an engineer and a mixer and a master or another musician to come and help me build the thing. But as far as just the raw bare bones of sitting down and writing a song because you need to write a song, I'm always going to do that. It's a terrible sick compulsion <laughs> a terrible sick compulsion that those of us that have created music know that it's i, I there's a line from uh, blues brothers 2000 not the best of the two if i'm being honest but blues brothers 2000 where it's at least for me and i was saying to me with the time when I, when I was listening to it back in the day i was watching the movie back in the day rather he says when you get when the everything is a rocking paraphrasing when, it, when the room is a rocking everything works right Everything has that feel. There is no pharmaceutical drug out there that will hit the same high that you hit when you hit the, all, the music perfectly and things are just rocking properly. I, I am very much pra- paraphrasing that because it's been probably over a decade since I watched it. But I would say as someone who, who really did enjoy doing that sort of thing, it, it wasn't even for the love of the people. It's just when you're doing it well and it just has that vibe. At least that's my perspective. Is that kind of your thought too there, Mike? Or yeah, just... I'm one of those people that loves music so much. I even love rehearsal and nobody likes rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, you play the same song 40 times in a row because you got to play it right. But I just like playing and it, there's something special about playing something that you personally wrote. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with playing things that other people wrote, because we all start there, I think. But something that you personally wrote that says something that you believe in, that expresses feelings you need to get out, and then just sharing that with other people, right? Human beings, we are social creatures. If the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that we all need each other, right? Uh, so being able to communicate those feelings to other people 
and especially if if someone tells us that what we wrote or performed has touched them or they've related to it anyway, then that's like the fuel. I mean, we would do it anyway, but that's the fuel that keeps you from being bitter and it keeps you going. Like, I feel like people that do other forms of art would probably say the same. Painters don't generally just not show anyone their paintings, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, art is meant to be shared because it's a vehicle for communication. Yeah, unless unless you're a Van Gogh who he tried to sell, wasn't doing so good, and then he you know he ended very tragically. Or I do find it interesting. And what do you think that now millions, countless millions of people love his work? I had to wonder. I mean, we we've talked about this before. At least Art and I have. I don't, I don't know. If, I think it was during an episode two where like you know they have that Doctor Who episode where he finds out what his his stuff did. But I, I it's super interesting to me because. No joke, right now, it's probably in a city near you, wherever you are. But down here in Cincinnati, at this particular moment, you have the interactive exhibit for Van Gogh, a dude who did like like 12 paintings his whole life. But he's been so darn influential because so, of those 12. <laughs> I keep seeing that, and I'm like, I, I, first of all, I have no desire to go to that because Impressionism, not my thing. Um, <laughs> but also, I've seen, you know, I've been to the Orsay, so I've seen some of his actual paintings in there in their home and i've actually also been to arl where uh he did a lot of his work they really love him down there by the way um hmm. yeah you know the you know the, the his famous painting the with like the it's like the cafe and there's a courtyard oh yeah that's an actual real place i've been there uh mm-hmm. in fact that cafe is named after him now which i feel like is a purely a naked grab for those tourist dollars right but um, yeah <laughs> but like it's kind of surreal when you go like when you walk there from the direction that the painting is made and you kind of recognize it, even though it's been a couple hundred years right has it been that long i don't know but um yeah real real places uh so yeah despite my distaste for that particular flavor of art uh yeah i respect the work and a lot of people dig it like that, I'm sure that interactive and go is getting a lot of people going through it, and they're making probably a whole pile of money, right? It's uh, I, I, I it's been a minute since I've checked, so please, whoever's listening, to this, don't quote me. I think it was like forty dollars per person. Uh, there's a VIP version and a standard peasant version. Um, that that's another thing. Uh, I just as another reference to a different, different person. It's more of a political one, but it's a reference point. Karl um, Marx's house in Trier, Germany, I have been near. I didn't go to because it costs a lot of money to go there. But it was so entertaining because despite the guy being very much, you know, power to the people, there is so much corporate grab on that dude's image. Like, Marx on a bottle of wine is a thing in Trier, Germany. So it's it's this interesting. I find, I find it super interesting. It's like people... It's a mixture between the artist obviously cared or the author very much cared what they did, and then someone else comes along and just takes their image and makes money off of it. Uh, but we talked about it in that episode, too, but it's... it's Same kind of as it ever was, really, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do have to say, Mike, what you're talking about is not just simple creation. You're talking about calling. You're talking about creation because it matters to your soul, because it matters to who you are as a person, as a living, sentient creature, right? That's actually a lot better than I would personally explain it. But yes, <laughs> that is exactly what I'm talking about. But I mean, that to me is is so translatable to so many different fields. Andy and I are both involved in the field of education. And... Someone asked me a similar question the other day, given all of the challenges that, that, that we face in education today. Why continue to do it? 
why continue to pursue this? And I had that, that moment of awkward self-reflection where all I could say was, because it matters to me, because this is the one thing that I believe I'm supposed to do and that I need to do it. And, and that's enough, right? Even that, if I don't do it reason. well, I need to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, the old Japanese term, and I'm going to pronounce it horribly, and I apologize, ikigai, uh, which is this whole, and for those who've ever not heard this term before, I'm probably, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but it's basically the thing you want to do, the thing you're good at, and the thing you can get paid for. And if those three uh, concentric circles hit the center, uh, and I think it's, there's actually a fourth one there somewhere, like what the, you know, what the world needs or something like that. When those four meet, that is where you should be, quite honestly. And uh, I'm not going to toot Art's horn too much, although I feel it necessary. Every once in a while, he, and he's too humble to talk about, so I'll, I'll brag on for you. Uh, an article will come out and talk don't, about Art's don't do accomplishments. It, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, fine. Let's just say Art's accomplishments are sometimes quite large, and he ends up in a paper for it, and then he gets sometimes an award for it. And But if you ever talk to Art about that, he, he did just that, that exact same reaction. Like, he doesn't want to do it, but that's the thing. Mike, I would argue that you're probably similar in that, like, you do it because you love it, but you also happen to be very good at it. So it kind of works. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm all that good at it, but I try to be as I try to do as well as I can, given my skill set and limitations. And the why question I ask myself, well, I ask myself this often on behalf of other musicians, uh, specifically in country and Americana, because at the moment, uh, those genres are not too friendly to brown people, but brown people have always been making that kind of music for as long as it has existed. And the industry that is built up around country music is all sorts of racist and evil and terrible and awful and homogenous. But there are a lot of artists of color that love that music and that make that music. And I follow a bunch of them on Twitter. And I'm always asking myself, hey, very talented country artists, brown lady, this genre and this industry has shown time and again, they don't want you. They don't support you. You've had to jump through a whole lot of hoops to even get the part of your career that you have. Wouldn't it be easier just to go do funk music or soul or R&B or anything else? Like, I mean, I'm an indie rock guy primarily, and not that it's the most friendly genre for brown people, but it's better than country <laughs> as far as racism is concerned. It speaks to me of how much these artists have to love the music to stick to their chosen genre when it's clear the industry does not want. And that's not my chosen genre of music. I've been trying to listen to more country the last few years to broaden my horizons, but it's never going to be the first thing I reach for. But anytime someone of color is making a country record or an Americana record, I'm going to go listen to it, even if it's not my thing, just as a show of support. Because in order to stick it out in that part of the music industry, you have to love the music more than anything. Otherwise, why would you? And I'm thinking about people like Reese Palmer and Mickey Guyton and Rhiannon Gideons and Amethyst Kia, who was just here in Dayton. Folks like that, they have to love it so much that they're willing just to deal with the nonsense. And even if it's not, even if everything they write is not my cup of tea, like the last record Mickey Guyton put out, not my thing. That modern pop country stuff, not for me. But if she loves it and that's what she wants to write and she's going to deal with the nonsense she has to put up with to make the kind of music she wants and more power to her. And I feel like I 
owe it to people that are going to put in that work to at least give their music a chance, even if it's not the first thing I would listen to. But those are the kind of people, if you ask them why, I'll bet they would tell you the same thing. They'd say, I have to. This is what I want to do. This is the art that I want to make. And there's something there's something so strong about that. I, I As you're talking, of course, I'm listening to everything you're saying, but I'm thinking like, I could probably speak on one hand the country music artists I know of or at least people in country music that are people of color. And I think it's that genre. It's just it happens to be one of the of the handful that has that same problem. Um, something like Darius Rudger, who became much more popular through Hootie and the Blowfish. And then he said, oh, hey, I'm going to do uh, Wagon Wheel. <laughs> and that became you know, a very popular song, uh, which was originally done by Old Crow Medicine Show, if I remember correctly. Uh, I'm thinking of Nas. Uh, if he, he was just there because I think someone just said, hey, let's bring in Nas because he's a rapper and I just want to add to my style because it was a purpose liquor. And the guy that really stands out as the person who just pissed off the whole industry was Lil Nas X who just said I'm gonna do Old Town Road F you and oh by the way I didn't tell you coming in oh I'm also uh, you know I'm from the LGBT community and tell you what I'm not gonna be quiet about that and then I'm gonna bring Billy Ray Cyrus who also pissed off the entire industry when he became a come around and yeah it's a it's a dedication towards look I'm a I'm a person like you're a person I could do the same thing as you and you know what I'll probably do it better than you but I'm gonna be here whether you like it or not and I really appreciate that quite honestly so yeah (laughs) And that takes a lot of fortitude. That takes a lot of strength. It takes um, a lot of character to pursue that calling, to pursue that personal musical or artistic mission, even given the industry response or the limitations or the lack of representation that Mike so eloquently addresses here. Mike, we are completely out of time. We definitely need to do a part two because we got more questions for you. <laughs> cool. Schedule it. Schedule it as soon as uh, you get a chance. Thank you so much for joining us on Uncool Music Conversations. You have made quite truly accurate our sentiment that the only true, real, meaningful conversations happen between people when they're being uncool, when they're being real. Philip Seymour Hoffman, almost famous. Great quote. Well, it's it's actually an interpretation of the writer, Lester Bangs, where they take the quote from. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, everybody. So we are at the end of the episode. I want to thank Mike for coming in. Uh, I, I This is a great, like, we were not joking. We're going to bring him in for a part two. This is going to be a great time. Uh, however, for tonight's purposes, we kind of need to wrap up. And so we're going to do our usual, which is recommendations. So Art has graciously suggested that I go first. And here's my suggestion. We talked about music and lyrics as a way to talk about music. And there's a movie called Music and Lyrics that happened to have come out in 2007 with Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant. That honestly, it's a, it's an interesting movie that it I is. think about. It's it, and I, if you, apparently you've seen it, apparently we're the only two people in the whole world. Uh, but, but it's one I of these interesting. have a DVD in the other room, Andy. Well, the, oh, so you're super dedicated. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you if you want to watch it, it's currently on Prime Video. I'm on IMDb right now. There's other other more watch options. But here's what this is about. Essentially, it is Hugh Grant, who used to be a uh, a boy band pop singer in the UK, is the best way I can express it. He was an 80s musician who broke with his partner. It was like, it's kind of like a reference to Wham! and other things of of the age. And they just happened to break apart. He did his own thing, but he was only a music guy. He only did the music. He never focused on lyrics until, in true romantic comedy style, Drew Barrymore comes into the mix and says, hey, you have good music, but 
you need to make sure you have lyrics in the way she expresses as, you know, you know, it's like being attractive, but having no personality, you have to have both parts to make this thing work. And so I would argue, especially because Mike is such a talented and he's too humble to say this. He's a very talented musician. I would argue that if you want to see kind of in a, in a more commercial way of seeing how this goes down, I'd go check out Music and Lyrics. Again, it's, it's on Prime. I guarantee it's other places, but that's a good place to start. Well, I am going to be super simple. I'm going to recommend that you check out Mike Bankhead's music. He has a terrific website. Not surprisingly, MikeBankheadMusic.com. Mike Bankhead Music on Twitter. He's on Instagram. He's all over social media. Of course, he has a Bandcamp page. I say, of course, because it seems like it is a natural thing for musicians to have. So don't just consider streaming his music through Spotify or Apple Music or whatever your streaming source might be. Consider going to Bandcamp or his website, listening to the music and purchasing the music. Because one of the mantras we say on our radio show is support your local music scene. Anyone we have on the program is someone whose music we recommend. So take some time and support these musicians, especially check out Mike Bankhead, whether it's through his website, Spotify, or of course, Bandcamp.com. Well, Andy, there you go. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much. You can reach us through all kinds of social media. Of course, you can check us out at Uncool Music Conversations. Dot com. We're Uncool Music Convo on Twitter and Instagram and all those places. There's the link tree to Uncool Music Conversations. So we are most easily found. Thank you for listening, everybody. Remember, support your local music scene. Every day, everybody. Thank you for listening to Uncool Music Conversations with Andy and Art. If you'd like to contact us with any questions, comments, or ideas about the podcast, reach out to us at Uncool Music Convo 38 at gmail.com. Again, that is Uncool Music Convo 38 at gmail.com. Links to all our social media is at linktr.ee forward slash Uncool Music Conversations. We are on Instagram at Uncool Music Convo. We are also on Twitter at Uncool Music Convo 1. Again, that's Uncool Music Convo 1. The number, not the word. Finally, our website is uncoolmusicconversations.com. Again, that is uncoolmusicconversations.com. Remember, everyone, music chooses you. And support your local music scene.